Welcome, friends. Kids, it's sad to see you go. Others, it's glad to have you stay. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here of Cedar Mill. And if you've been around for a while, you know that we are in a series right now called Why Church? Um, and not, not why come to church, although coming to church is part of being the church, but why be the church? Why, why join the family of God? Why spend your time and energy and effort and resources being a part of a community like this one, like Cedar Mill Bible Church? Why does the church matter? What are we here for? What does it look like for us to live out and live into the calling that we have as followers of Jesus in this world? And so for the final two weeks of this series, I want to dive in and talk about our church Cedar Mill Bible Church. I want to talk about our mission. I want to talk about who we're called to be. Specifically, I I want to dive in with us and discuss what we call around here our seven distinctives. Today, we're going to look at three of them. Next week, we'll talk about the remaining four. But before I do, I want to take a minute and talk about that word distinctive because it's a very distinctive word, isn't it? It's an important word. Here's what it means. This is right out of dictionary.com, so you can look it up later for yourself. Distinctive, a distinguishing characteristic. Distinctive, having a special or notable quality, style, or attractiveness. And friends, this is important because if anyone in the history of the world was distinctive, If anyone had special, notable, admirable, attractive qualities, it was Jesus himself, wasn't it? Over the past few years, I've talked about the show The Chosen. Some of you in here have watched The Chosen. If you haven't, it's a TV show about the life of Jesus and his disciples. Um, And it's, it's one of the best productions I have ever seen. And one of the things, maybe the thing, that makes this show so exceptional, in my opinion, is that the guy who plays Jesus, Jonathan Rumi, who some of you ladies probably have a crush on, which is a little awkward, honestly, to have a crush on Jesus, although I would have to say you've got good taste potentially here. Do you have a crush on Jesus or on Jonathan? I don't know. You'll have to work that out in your heart. Um, But this guy, he does such a magnificent job of capturing how Jesus is distinctive, how he stands out from everyone else in all the right ways. If you haven't seen The Chosen, check it out. Season three is about to come out. And friends, our mission together as Cedar Mill Bible Church, as a church family, is this. Becoming like Jesus and making him known. Our mission here is to live distinctive lives the way Jesus did, to be and become people who are defined by the qualities that Jesus embodied, to take on those special, notable, distinguishing, attractive characteristics of Jesus himself for us. 
One of my favorite stories in the scriptures is from the book of Acts. It's when Peter and John, it's right after Jesus has died. He's risen from the grave. He's ascended into heaven to be with the Father. And now the disciples are on their own and they're trying to figure out how do we do this thing? How do we live for Jesus? How do we follow him in this world without him physically present? And Peter and John, they see this man who's, who's suffering from paralysis sitting at one of the temple gates. And they think, well, I guess... I guess we'll just go for it. And they speak healing over this guy, and he is healed of his paralysis. And the religious leaders don't like this. The relig- all the, like, the high-up religious folks are angry, and they call them in, and they start to accuse them and question them. And then Peter and John respond boldly, and they start talking about Jesus and following him and the power of God in their lives. And then listen, listen to what the religious leaders say in response. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they, the religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These men, they had been with Jesus. Friends, too often the church is trying to live out the qualities of Jesus without the presence of Jesus. I think this is one of the reasons why people are struggling with church in our day because they see people who are sure trying to be morally good and ethnically right, or ethic, not ethnically right, ethically right. <laughs> people with good vocabularies. They see us as people who are trying so hard to be spiritually superior and yet They don't see people who have been with Jesus. And so as we launch into these seven distinctives for our church, I want to be crystal clear. These must be qualities that we are asking God to form in us as we spend time with Jesus and walk in step with the Holy Spirit. This is not a two-part mini-series in the midst of our larger series about things, seven things you can do to make God like you more. Or this is who... God says you have to become if you want to be closer to him. No, these are things that God does in us as we draw close to Jesus. And that's why the very first distinctive I want to talk about today is this one. Pray constantly. One of the distinctives that we have said will define us as a church is that we will be a people together who pray constantly. Friends, wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be amazing if after people spent time with us, they would think to themselves, they seem so ordinary, and yet it appears they have spent time with Jesus. There's something about their, their character and their words and their demeanor and their attitudes that just sort of starts to, that makes me feel connected to God. What if they sensed Christ in you and me? The Gospel of John, right before Jesus goes to the cross, I've talked about this before in this series, how for five chapters in the Gospel of John, Jesus is just talking about what it means to follow him, what his followers should look like and be like, and then he prays for his followers. He's talking about the church. He's talking about us for five chapters right before he dies. Listen to what he says in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, he's talking to his people, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. 
it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, that word remain, John uses here, is sometimes translated abide. It means to stay in close relationship. How much of the crisis of the church in our world today comes from the fact that we are trying to live the Christian life disconnected from Christ himself? It's Christianity without Christ. How much of the cynicism about the church and the negativity about the church stems from the fact that as people encounter us out in this world, people who claim to be Christ followers, as they wander into church communities and hear the theology of Jesus and the morality of Jesus, but what they never find, what they never experience is the heart and presence and power of Jesus. See, they find religious people, but not relationally connected to Christ people. Friends, we can... We can follow all the rules. Some of you out there are really good rule followers. Congrats. We got a sticker for you at the door. Actually, we don't. We can go through all the motions and actions of the Christian life, but if at the very center of it is not a deep, abiding, constant connection to Jesus, then the cold, hard truth is this. We can do nothing. We can do nothing. In fact, this is just a waste of time. If we're not connecting to Christ, then you might as well just go enjoy your Sunday morning. It's beautiful weather out there. Why are you in here? Martin Luther says, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. The great gospel singer Mahalia Jackson says, faith and prayer are the vitamins of the soul. Man cannot live in health without them. Friends, this is why when we talk about this list of distinctives, we are beginning with this one because this one is the fuel for all the others. This is what helps us be the people that we're called to be is the connection we have with God, with Jesus himself. You want power to love extravagantly? It's not easy. Pray constantly. You need endurance to hope relentlessly? Pray constantly. You need confidence to relate authentically? Pray constantly. You're longing for a heart that engages inclusively in a world that's divided? Pray. You You need courage to trust God when trusting God is hard? Pray, pray, pray. A number of weeks ago, one of our staff members did a devotion in a team meeting I had, and he talked about the TV show Alone. Any Alone fans out there? Anyone here addicted to Alone like I am right now? Uh, If you don't know about Alone, and my kids are really tired of me talking about it, so no comments from the peanut gallery over here. Here's how the show Alone works. They take 10 contestants and they drop them off in kind of a similar region, but in separate locations out in the wilderness. The first two seasons are like up in Vancouver Island in Canada. And they drop them off in the woods, all by themselves, completely alone and isolated. Each contestant is given 10 survival items of their choosing. And 
a satellite phone and some video equipment. They video themselves kind of living alone off the land and they try to survive for as many days as they possibly can. And then when they finally had enough and they can't bear the starvation and the isolation or the weather or whatever it is anymore, they pick up the satellite phone and they call and say, I'm out, come pick me up. They call it tapping out. The last person to tap out wins $500,000. And so you're just watching these people try to survive in the wilderness alone. It's amazing. The reason it blows me away is because I'd last like three days. Um, and some of these folks do, do phenomenal things. They build like cabins and houses and fireplaces, and they come up with ways to hunt and trap and fish that just blow your mind. It's phenomenal. But one thing you learn pretty quickly in the show, and this was the point of Josh's devotion. If you don't have nourishment going in, you will fairly quickly flame out. You see, you can have the best-looking camp and the coolest-looking cabin of anyone, but if you can't get clean water and sustainable food, you're going home real quick. In other words, you can do nothing. Friends, this same principle is so true of the Christian life. If we do not stay connected to Jesus, the vine, the abundant life in Christ that we are called to live will simply wither and die This is why we talk about pray constantly this way. We seek constant, conscious communion with our Heavenly Father. We seek constant, conscious communion with our Heavenly Father. That word communion, we often think of communion as sort of a religious word, but here's what it means. The interchange or sharing of thoughts and emotions, intimate connection and communication. That's communion. You see, this distinctive is not as much about making sure you say your daily prayers as it is about living the with God life. It's a life lived every day and throughout the day with Jesus. Life at home with Jesus, life at work with Jesus, life at school, life on the road, life doing mundane household chores, life eating Mexican food and drinking margaritas with friends. Life having hard conversations, life exercising and watching television, life when we face decisions and temptations and opportunities with Jesus. He wants to be a part of it all with us. Friends, what if instead of just checking in with God weekly at church or daily in the morning when you get up or periodically and then going off to kind of live life by yourself, We actually did life constantly and continuously with God. Isn't that how Jesus lived? When you read the Gospels, that's what you understand, is that he was constantly and consciously in the presence of his Father. Wouldn't this change you? Wouldn't this change us? Wouldn't... This changed the way the world saw us and experienced us if we, the church, actually did life with Jesus? Friends, some of you know this, but this idea, this this cornerstone of prayer has been part of our church from the very beginning. It goes all the way back to a guy named Al Wallen who pastored here for over 30 years from 1951 to 1982. Al is the one who coined the phrase constant conscious communion. 
Carl Palmer carried it on after him. And today we continue to say we long and desire and strive to be people defined by constant conscious communion. It's in the DNA of our church and it needs to continue to be if we want to have impact in Portland for the next 80 years. Here's our next distinctive. Relate authentically. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is talking to people and he's warning them about traps that religious people often fall into. We think about Jesus coming and like preaching to to like non-religious people or the world, but a lot of times Jesus is just talking to like godly people who want to follow. He's talking to churchy people. He's talking to people who might get up on a sunny, beautiful Sunday morning in September and come to church. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Jesus isn't always nice, is he? (laughs) You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Friends, Jesus is warning us here that as religious people, we may be tempted to present ourselves as more holy and righteous and spiritual on the outside than we actually are on the inside. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a group like this? Have you ever been in a group where people are just trying to appear and seem more spiritual than they really are? Have you ever been in a group where pe- someone starts to try and spiritually impress others with the words they say? Have you ever been in a group where someone tells a story, of, a real pious story of their spirituality, and then someone else, yeah, and then someone else, and it's sort of like this contagious thing that happens. Have you ever been in a prayer group where someone starts to pray, and, they have, and all of a sudden they have a completely different voice, like a prayer voice, and they use the word just constantly. God, if you just, and you just, and God, and then someone else prays, and all of a sudden there's this sort of, God, there's a theological word for that, barf. Barf. That's my interpretation of woe to you. We are not a a club for trying to spiritually impress one another or anyone else for that matter. Jesus actually saves some of his harshest words for this kind of behavior because he understands how insidious it is, how destructive it is, how contagious it is. Because I start spiritually posturing myself to up to look good, and then, and then you're tempted to do it, and then she's tempted to do it, and then he starts to do it. And before long, no one feels like they can be real in this community. The word Jesus uses here is the word hypocrisy. It's the Greek word hypocrites. And in the first century, it wasn't a religious word. It was just a word to describe an actor who wore a mask. Just someone who'd pretend to be someone they weren't. And Jesus says, This is how we should not act spiritually as his followers. He says, the church, my church, is not a place for pretending. It's not a place to try and bolster your spiritual image. 
The church is actually supposed to be the antithesis of this. It's supposed to be a place where we lay our sins out for others to see. It's supposed to be a community where struggles are shared and failures are are confessed. One of the words that marked the New Testament church, and it's a word Ashley used this morning in in her hosting, is the word sincere. The Bible tells us that when the New Testament, the first followers of Jesus gathered, they gathered with sincere hearts. Like, they just... Everything about their being was sincere. And the word sincere is a Latin word that's actually made up of two words. Sin, which means without, and seer, which means wax. Sincere, without, wax. And the idea here was that the Romans, um, during this period of time, were very into these ancient Greek statues. It was like They were like the like the most popular antiques of the day. They were all the hit on Antique Roadshow. And so, because the, but because these statues that people were collecting were centuries old, a lot of them had chips in them or cracks in them, and sometimes sellers, to make more money, would pour wax into the cracks of these statues to cover up the flaws to make the statues look better than they actually were. But if you were buying a statue and it was authentic, if there were no if there was no attempt to hide the flaws, then it would be labeled as sincere. This statue is sincere. It is without wax. You see, the church, friends, is supposed to be sincere. It's a place where you do not have to hide your flaws. Listen to how John, one of Jesus' disciples, talks about this when he writes his letter to the church. He says, if we, that's followers of Jesus, the church, if we Walk in the light, that's language for no more hiding, no more pretending, no more putting on airs. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The word here for fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, and it goes far beyond hanging out in the lobby and talking about your fantasy football team. Koinonia, friends, this fellowship that happens when we walk in the light is the intimate heart and soul connection of people who have opened up the deepest parts of their lives to one another and have determined to grow in following Jesus together. John is saying, if we are courageous enough to walk in the light and to be transparent and to allow some people in to see who we really are, then we can experience fellowship, real fellowship. And fellowship is the tool that God uses to purify us, to transform us, to help us become more like his son, which again is our mission This is why we talk about this distinctive using these words. Relate authentically. We know God uses transparency for transformation. We know that God uses transparency for transformation. I mean, do you feel, as you sit here today, and maybe you feel like you're not changing inside, like you're stuck, like you're stagnant in your quest to become like Jesus, Like the same old struggles and temptations and thought patterns and habits are still plaguing your mind and heart and life. Friends, maybe the answer is simply this. Be a little more honest. Be a little 
more sincere, have a little less wax in your life. Jump into a huddle. Pastor actually talked about huddle groups, like it's just one announcement. No, 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 this is a tool for transforming your life, for becoming like Jesus in this world. Get into a group with, you know, three to five men or three to five women and start to open up and show some of those cracks and flaws and dings and nicks in your life. Because God uses transparency, vulnerability, sincerity for transformation. Friends, the greatest spiritual movements in the history of our world have all understood this truth. That people are truly transformed when they are transparent. In the 1700s, for example, John and Charles Wesley, you've probably heard of the Wesley brothers, they started a movement that sort of swept across America. And their movement was really just about wanting people, wanting to help people really live out their calling to follow Jesus. And at the very heart of this movement were what the Wesley brothers called societies, small groups of believers committed to growing in Christ together. That's just their word for huddles or small groups. And if you wanted to join one of these groups, if like you showed up and said, man, I'm seeing change in some people, and they're saying it's all because of like being in these groups, I want to join a group. They'd say, oh, you do? We've got some questions for you. You want to hear the initiation questions for getting into a Wesley Brothers small group? These aren't our questions necessarily. These are theirs, so don't be scared out of huddling. Here's the questions they would ask you. Okay, you want to join? Does any sin, inward or outward, hold dominion over you? Do you desire to be told of your faults? Do you desire to be told of all your faults and to be told plainly and clearly? Not really. (laughs) Do you desire that every one of us should tell you from time to time whatsoever is in his heart concerning you? Consider, do you desire that we should tell you whatsoever we think, whatsoever we fear, whatsoever we hear concerning you? Do you desire that in doing this, we should come as close as possible? We should cut to the quick and search your heart to the bottom. (laughs) Finally, is it your desire and design to be in this and in all other occasions entirely open so as to speak everything that is within your heart without exception, without disguise, and without reserve? Welcome to the club. (laughs) You see, what they understood was this, that This is how transformation happens, through sincerity and and, and transparency. Here's our final distinctive today. Hope relentlessly. Friends, this distinctive always needs some explaining because worldly hope and biblical hope are not the same thing. You see, in our world, hope is primarily, when we use the word hope, we're talking mostly about uncertainty. When we hope for something, we are, in a sense, wishing for something, right? We are longing for something that may or may not occur. Let me give you an example. Uh, Pastor Ashley mentioned that my birthday is this Tuesday, which I didn't tell her to do, and I didn't want her to because I wanted to announce it right now. Um, and as part of every birthday in our family these days, there's this, this routine that happens about, mm, I don't know, a month or a few weeks beforehand my mom will send a text to my wife and myself saying, whoever's birthday it is, what do they want for their birthday? She always wants a list. My mom loves to give gifts. She's a great gift giver, but she wants to make sure she gets the right gift. And so she wants us to inform her of some things we might get. This year, I decided to be proactive. And so I sent my mom a list ahead of time. 
I just said, hey, mom, birthday's coming up. Um, I know you're going to want a list. Here's four things you might consider giving me. And I started like, number one was like a brand new set of pickleballs. I love pickleball. And it was like, you know, 20 bucks. And then it like went on from there. It was like a new bag. I want a new backpack or a bag to carry to work. And then it was something else. And the very final, and it just kept getting more expensive. And the very final item on the list, I put like some new shoes. Actually, I put lifestyle shoes because it sounded more official. And my mom was like, what are lifestyle shoes? And I was like, well, it's just these shoes that I've been kind of looking at and I kind of wanted to get. And I was kind of like, I was hoping, some hope, I'm worldly hoping. I'm hoping mom doesn't go for the pickleballs. I can afford those but I'm probably not going to drop the money on the shoes for myself. And because my mom is awesome, and mom, if you're watching online, I love you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going off screen just for a second. My mom got me the shoes. And so I should definitely put them on because they are super cool. And um, I think my son said they were dope. I don't know. That's, is that what he said, Dax? Dax was like, no, that word's way old, dad. That's not what I said. Anyway, but I got the new shoes and I have made fun of pastors who wear cool sneakers when they preach, but I'm doing it today for my mother. Okay. Here's the point. When we talk about hope, we're often talking about wishing for something, but in the Bible, the word for hope means something different. Hope in the scriptures is not about something you are wishing for, but about something you know. It's about something you have certainty in that offers in return security, peace, and confidence no matter what life brings your way. Listen to how Peter says it in 1 Peter 1.3. He's talking to the church. He says, church, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. See, Peter is saying, there is something that will happen. It is certain and for sure. You can count on it. You can bank on it. And it's salvation and restoration and redemption through God's grace poured out on you when Jesus Christ returns for his people. Peter is encouraging the church. Don't put your hope in the wrong place. Don't put your hope in the things of this world that may or may not happen. And even if they do happen, will certainly come and go. These shoes will wear out someday. Hopefully a long time from now. Put your hope, he's saying, in Jesus and what he has done for you. Because that hope will last for all eternity. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold un." Swervingly, I love that word, unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. The call here is for us to hope relentlessly, unswervingly, to be laser focused on the promises of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 says, We thank God that you, they're writing to the church, that you continue to be strong Like there's a strength in you. There's a confidence in your life because of your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know that he's true. Because you're certain of what he has said. See, friends, when your hope is in Jesus, you are stable. When your hope is in Jesus, 
Your hope is in something that's certain and eternal, and you will find strength in that to get you through all the ups and downs of this life. That's why our statement about this distinctive reads this way. Hope relentlessly. We cling to the unmovable promises we have in Jesus. Friends, in this world, it is not easy to keep our hope rooted in Christ. That is a challenge, especially as Americans in this century, because in our world, there is a lot to put your hope in. There's a lot in this world that we look to and are tempted to look to for security. There's peace and joy and pleasure offered to us all the time in various ways. In fact, everywhere we turn, there is someone or something promising us contentment and happiness and a life of unparalleled satisfaction if we will only buy this, do this, take this product, invest in this place. This is why time and time again, the scriptures call us back to cling to our hope in Jesus. Don't let any other hope separate you from that hope. And friends, that's why when we gather, we regularly share this meal together. This meal we're about to share together, it's a meal of hope. It's a reminder for us that our real hope, our true hope, our ultimate hope is in the fact that our God loved us so much that he came to earth and paid the penalty for our sins and then went into that grave and defeated death once and for all that you and I, though we will die, will always and forever live. That's the hope we cling to. That's the hope we are promised. That's the hope that will get you through all the other disappointing hopes on this planet. So this morning, we're gonna take that meal together as a reminder and as a declaration that our hope is firmly founded in Jesus Christ. And so I'm gonna invite you to the tables. The table, it's just one big table. They're spread out around the room, but this is one table where we come together to make this declaration and remember these promises. Thanks, Austin. And as you go to the table, though, I want you to do this today. Just as you're up and as you're walking to get the elements and then back to your seat, we'll receive them all together in just a minute. I want you to consider, where is my hope these days? Like really, like honestly, not, don't, not just like, oh, it's in Jesus, okay. But like honestly, what, what am I hoping in in my life right now? To what or to whom am I honestly looking to for security and peace and confidence and meaning and joy? Where have I sort of placed my hope, and is that place going to withstand the test of time? Is it gonna make it through this up and down world, and is it going to carry on into the world to come? Be honest with yourself about where your hope is these days, or maybe another way of saying that is, what little earthly hope is challenging your ultimate eternal hope in Jesus right now? This is a chance in this meal to remember what Hope stands supreme in your life and in my life and in our life together. So when you're ready, take a minute if you want, but when you're ready, you can stand, move to the table, get the elements, take them back to your seat. We'll receive them together in a moment.